What a wonderful way to start worship. Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody this beautiful Sunday morning. I hope you guys have had a great weekend. I'm excited to worship with you today. March 31st, 1982. Significant day in my life. The reason it was significant, because it was the first day of my life. That was my birthday, March 31st, 1982. I don't remember a whole lot about that particular day, as you might not be surprised, but there are a couple of interesting facts I want to share with you this morning as we begin. Uh, The average American baby weighs around 7.5 pounds, okay? That's that's the average birth weight of an American-born child. Now, obviously, there's some variation within that, some a little bit more, some a little bit less. And in certain situations, you do have kind of these extreme cases. For example, if a a child was born premature, a lot of times it's well under that average weight. Well, I was an extreme case, but it wasn't related to any sort of premature birth. I wasn't born prematurely, and so my extreme case was, uh, was on the opposite end of the spectrum. I came into this world at a whopping 12.1 pounds, okay? So it was pretty awesome, right? Thank you. Thank you. I worked hard for it. really did. Um, and, and so I think it was a record at the hospital or with the pediatrician. I'm not really sure, but I'm curious. Anybody here today that can trump me? Anybody here born greater than? All right. Okay, we got one. Hunter, you get to come and preach then today, all right, man, since you, what was, what was your weight? I got to know. 13. Wow, that's awesome. I love it. So, so Hunter and I, we, we can connect uh, on this extreme case. Now, what was interesting for me was that when I had James, I remember taking him to the wellness checkup at two months, and he weighed 12 pounds. And I'm sitting there holding my two-month-old son going, this is how I arrived, you know. And, and what made it interesting, too, my dad tells a story that at first they misweighed me, and, and they initially calculated it at 13.6. So he went out and made the announcement to the, to the grandparents. He's like, it's a boy, and he weighs 13.6 pounds. And my grandmother just looked at him and said, what? You know, she couldn't even comprehend it. So I've always had that as somewhat of a claim to fame as my birth weight. Another thing that was interesting about my birth was my name. All right, Jeremiah. Now, there's not a whole lot of Jeremiahs that I've met through the course of my life. It is somewhat of a unique name, but but my name has another little twist of uniqueness to it because of the way it's spelled. Uh, If you're familiar with the book in the Bible, it's spelled J-E-R-E-M-I-A-H, but my name is spelled J-E-R-I-M-I-A-H. So I have two I's as opposed to two E's, and I've always joked that it's better to have a two-eyed Jeremiah than a one-eyed Jeremiah, right? But um, dad joke. I'm entitled to those every once in a while. Okay, I know it's cheesy, but but my name is different because I'm not named after the book of the Bible, right? That's, that's not where I get my name. I, I get my name from my grandfather, John Jeremiah King. And so when he was born, his, his mom misspelled his name on the birth certificate. And so when I arrived, uh, he pulled my mom aside at one point and said, now, Chrissy, you spell that name correctly. And she said, no, Daddy, he's named after you. He's going to spell it the way you spell it. And so it's kind of become this, this family legacy. And, and my son, his middle name is Jeremiah, and he spells it the same way. And I've always loved that distinct element of my name because it tells a story. And, and part of what it tells is, is where I belong, right? This, phenam- this family that I'm, I'm connected to. And so when, when Jennifer and I, when we had children, we kind of followed suit and took a similar approach. Both of our children carry names that speak to a family legacy, people that, that we uh, are fond of, people that are important in our lives or in our family's life. And, and we really value that approach to a name. And, and that's something that I think is very significant when you think about having a name. It, it's something that I didn't fully grasp when I was younger, but definitely see more the value of it on this side of adulthood, especially as a parent, right? That, that a name communicates something. 
It sends a message. And it doesn't just send a message to the people that we introduce ourselves to, right? It sends a message to the child itself that in many ways what a name says is, hey, you belong. You're mine. You're a part of this family. This is where you find home. It's it's very important and powerful message. And it's one that I want us to all be stirred by again this morning because it's really the essence of the gospel, isn't it? Right, part of the promise that we see in this response to what God has done for us through Jesus and revelation is that he's going to give us a new name. Right, this, this whole journey of redemption is this moment where we see God the Father say, hey, you belong to me. You're mine. And I can't help but think that that's a message that many of us need to be reminded of this morning. Right, that many of us come in here today struggling with a sense of belonging. Right? Maybe we're, we're questioning our sense of worth, our sense of value. Maybe we're wrestling with purpose, with identity. Maybe, there are all sorts of things that we're wrestling with. And at the very least today, if we can all be encouraged and hear once again that God sees you and says, hey, you belong. You are valued. You are loved. This is home. That, that's something we all need to, to gravitate towards today. It's something that we need to be grateful for. And so before we even get to the text, that's how I want us to begin. I just want to begin with a heart of gratitude for this love that has been extended to us from God the Father. So if you just close your eyes for a moment and just quiet your heart. And just in your own mind and in your own soul, if you could just offer a word of praise and gratitude to God for the fact that he loves you and he has claimed you as his own. If there's any part of you, anyone in here today that struggles with that sense of belonging, that carries a sense of loneliness, would you confess that to God and ask him to take it from you and to reassure you of his love? Father, today is the day that we do commit to you. I pray that more than anything else, each and every one of us can once again be stirred by the fact that you have claimed us as your own. Father, we thank you for that amazing truth. We thank you for the hope of this gospel. So may we respond in praise and adoration today to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, today is the second week of our missions emphasis here at University Baptist Church. We began this journey last week really with this theme of the harvest, right? And this idea that we have been called to be workers in the harvest. And that's what we looked at as an introduction last Sunday. We had the opportunity to be in Matthew chapter 9 and look at that famous verse that the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out more workers. And, and that's really kind of set the tone for our discussion. What does it mean to be a worker in the harvest? And we're going to continue with that question today, but today we're going to consider it with a less, less of a broad approach like we did last week, and we're going to bring it to our attention with a greater specificity today a greater focus and intentionality on what specific task, one of the many that God entrusts to us in terms of being a worker in the harvest. And, and the thought process behind this is that through the course of the fall, right, we, we looked at these idea, this idea that our convictions shape our identity, right? Our fixed and firm beliefs are going to be what, what ultimately shape who we are as individuals. And eventually, those beliefs, those convictions begin to work themselves from the inside out. And they, they influence our conduct. They influence our work, Okay, and so we've been on that trajectory, and, and what we're trying to cultivate here at the church, a lot of what we talked about last week is this foundation of how we begin to live that out, this foundation of discipleship, 
right? Part of what we saw is that Jesus gives us an example that when we commit ourselves to the work of the Lord, it demonstrates itself in a love for all people where we are ready to go to proclaim, to teach, and to heal others, right? That, that's the work. We do so out of a spirit of compassion. This is that, that journey of being disciples who make disciples, We give our lives to this devotion of love of all people so that we can proclaim the good news, we can teach the good news, and we can use the good news to heal others, right? That's the foundation that we're trying to lay here. Now, part of what's going to spring up from that foundation as we continue to to foster this as a church is this other idea that we've talked about before that we want to be a people who love justice, right? That's a natural manifestation of the work of the Lord is that we are going to be a church, we're going to be people who rise up and fight for the oppressed, Right, who, who fight against the injustices of the world. We want to be a light in the darkness. And, and that means we're not going to just sit back and wait for darkness to reveal itself and just react. No, we're going to be proactive and we're going to go with the confidence that the light is greater than the darkness. And so today gives us a chance to look at one specific injustice in the world that we can fight for. Right, today is, is Orphan Sunday. It's an emphasis that is going to be uh, celebrated and practiced and commemorated in churches literally in hundreds of countries around the world. Right, this, this consistent reminder right, that we are to care for and look after the orphan. So there are, there are several things that I want to make you aware of as we begin today. The first is, is that at the conclusion of the service, you're going to have an opportunity to go by the Welcome Center and, and engage with some very practical ways in which you can care for the orphan. Now, we'll elaborate on that here in a little bit, but we've, we had Buckner here with us. We have CASA here. We, we've got Care Portal. We've got three different organizations that have set up some information in the Welcome Center that you're going to have a chance to go by and find out more. And I, and I want to encourage everyone on the front end of this message to really make time to do that, right? It's going to give us an opportunity to have a practical response to this message, okay? So we, we want to journey in this emphasis today of really figuring out what does it mean for us to care for the orphan in today's climate, in today's context. Now, what we're going to discover, not just today, but hopefully what we even got a glimpse of last week and the weeks ahead, is that when you begin to have these sorts of conversations, and you begin to talk about missions and being a worker for the harvest and all those different things, what we're going to discover is that being a missional people, right, an endeavor into missions is more than an endeavor into the world. It's really an endeavor into the heart of God. That's really where we're going. Right? We fight for the orphan because our God is a father to the fatherless. Right? We get a greater discovery of who he is and what he, he cares about, and that's why we pursue it. And, and that's what we want to look at today is how do we pursue this particular call. So there's a, there's a well-known passage that many of us know that we're going to look into today, James chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. And, and let me kind of set it up a little bit. Uh, James begins this letter by addressing it to the 12 tribes of Israel scattered throughout the world, scattered throughout the nations. And, and you look in that opening chapter, and there's a lot of wonderful verses that just immediately grab you. I mean, there are discussions related to persecution and trial, discussions related to wisdom, uh, and all of this wonderful rhetoric that really grabs you on the front end of this letter. Now, we're really just going to dive into one particular verse, one, one simple verse that really is going to demand most of our uh, emphasis today, James 1, 27. But, but there's some important context to it that we need to look at before we really begin to look at the teachings of it. So where we're going to start is actually in verse 22. So if you have your Bibles, chapter 1 of the book of James, starting in verse 22. Here's how it reads. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. 
do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Okay, I, I love this passage. And the, the first phrase that grabs us is there in verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word and deceive yourselves. Do what it says. I love that. I mean, if there was ever kind of a thematic message to Missions Month, wouldn't that be it? Hey, don't just listen, do. Right? There, there has got to be action that accompanies your faith. You've you got to take these beliefs and you've got to put them into practice in some capacity. You can't just listen, you have to do. That, that's the, the tone that is set in, in the 22nd verse there of chapter 1. And, and I love that because it does challenge us. Right? It's this idea that, again, if we're going to be a church, we want to be those that are, that are filled and ready with the Spirit to work. And, and that is something that we have to intentionally pursue because if we're honest, a lot of the way in which we approach faith and a lot of the ways in which we approach church today is really geared around listening, isn't it? I mean, if you think about it, it's like, hey, come early, come to Sunday school and get in a room and connect with people and listen. And then come to the main service and we'll sing a little bit and then you get to sit down and listen. And then maybe you can get connected to a small group and listen. Now, obviously, if we're doing things right, all of those experiences have more to them, right? There's prayer, there's accountability. Those, those things are valuable experiences. But if we're not careful, we can, we can skew our experience to, to listening, right? And that's the bulk of our expression of the faith. And, and we need to guard against that. And so one of the questions that we need to all ask ourselves this morning, and, and a question that I want to ask you, a question I've been asking myself all week, is, is which one are you? Are you a listener? You a doer? What, which way do you lean? If you were to really evaluate your life, what, what do you spend most of your time doing? Now, now, let me be very clear. We need to do both. Right? It is not choose one. James doesn't say stop listening and go do. He says don't forget what you have heard. Right? We must do both. Right? If we just run off into activity and we don't know why we're doing it, we don't know the meaning behind it, we don't know the value behind it, we don't know the scriptures behind it, that's an exercise in futility. And yet if we just sit around and we listen all day and we listen all day and we listen all day and we never do anything, that also is leading us astray. We need to do both. Right, so the message that James is really trying to drive home here and kind of the fundamental message for us this morning is, hey, don't just listen, do. Do what it says. Now, part of the reason that James is alluding to here that, that creates a challenge for us to actually do what the scriptures say is, is this idea of self-deception. Right? He mentions it twice. It's kind of the link descriptor there in verse 22 and in verse 26. In both situations, we deceive ourselves. Right, the reason for our inactivity a lot of times is this rationalization. Right? We deceive ourselves that we're good. Right? We can rationalize our disobedience. And, and, and so the ways in which James highlights this rationalization is the first, like, it's like you forget what's even been told to you. Right? So you go through the motions, you go through the habit, but then you walk away and it's like it's not even there. 
They're like a person that looks in a mirror and then forgets what they look like. There's no comprehension, no retention, no understanding. Or the other way that we deceive ourselves is with a tongue that we don't keep a rein on. Now, when you look at that verse, I, I will tell you that when I've always read that, I've really thought more along the line of, of somebody that was careless with their speech, right? Somebody that, that uh, engaged in gossip or profanity or just a careless rhetoric with, with their words, right? Um, and, and I still think that there's some truth to that. But, but one of the scholars that I was reading as I was studying this passage said, a lot of it is just these empty platitudes towards faith, right? It, it's all talk, right? So essentially what what we could equate it to is this idea that, man, we know the answers. Right? We, we know the Sunday school rhetoric. We can get on there. We can, we can give the appearance with our speech. Right? We can put the nice little post on social media, do the hashtag, take the picture of us reading our Bible at a coffee shop, and we can be all talk and not really live it out. And that equates to self-deception. We convince ourselves that that's enough. It's important. It's not all of it. And so we have to guard against this self-deception. When we fall victim to it, it creates a worthless religion, James says. Now, this is something we need to stop and evaluate for a second because religion kind of carries its own negative connotation today, doesn't it? Right? I mean, we, we hear that word and we're like, ooh, I don't want to be religious because a lot of people think of it as just this ritualistic expression of their beliefs, right? There's no heart. There's no relationship. So we tend to avoid terminology like religion, and, and James is saying, now, you need to avoid the worthless religion that has this self-deception and this, this inability to do what, what has been told to you, but there is a, a good religion to pursue. So we kind of need to rescue this word a little bit this morning for this, this passage to make sense. That In its simplest definition, religion is belief and practices, right? It's, it's what we've been talking about. It, it's convictions turned to action, right? It, it's faith and obedience, right? It, it's, it's the whole expression of a devotion to God. Right? So it's, it's that culmination. Now, here's what really struck me as I began to study this word. The etymology of this word actually finds its roots in to tremble. I love that. Because part of a healthy religion, part of a healthy belief and practice, rediscovers a reverence that we should have before God the Father. And I can't help but think if they, that's where we go astray. Right? One of the reasons we forget what we've just read or we are careless with our words is because we don't carry the sort of reverence that God actually demands. Right? So we, we come here ready to hear a sermon, but we really need to come here understanding that we're not here just to hear a sermon or to have some opportunity to read some verses from some ancient text. No, we come here this morning standing before the creator of the universe, and that should make each and every one of us tremble. That's who we're here to sing to and to worship and to study and to be stirred by. It should create this reverence. That, that's the trembling that we find in this religion that James wants us to pursue. So he further defines it, right? It's this, this reverent pursuit. It's this pure and faultless religion. That's how he describes it. Now, you, you take those terms, and they basically mean the same thing, to, to be without blemish, to, to have no stain, essentially, Right? And, and I think this is an important thing for us to work through for a moment, because when you think about purification, you think about uh, being without blemish, pure and faultless, uh, really what this was talking about in biblical terms, right? when you think back to the old ceremonies of purification in the Old Testament, what they were leading up to was the opportunity to have access to God, right? that there is this purification that needs to take place in order for us to have access to God. So that's really what James is talking about here, this religion, this reverence, this pure and faultless religion gives you access 
to God. That should be something we should all desire, is to be in God's presence all the time. All the time. And yet so much of our lives is really kind of structured with, well, we'll give you an hour on Sunday and sometime on Wednesday. That is not the sort of proximity and the sort of desire for God's presence that God's people should have. You know what it made me think of when I was reading this? I hate that this is the example I thought of, but I couldn't think of anything else. It made me think of my dog, to be honest, y'all. Um, I got a little yellow lab, not little, I got a yellow lab at home, and she's like three years old, three years this month. Oh, happy birthday. Um, and she's amazing. Now, cat people in here today, you're not going to understand this, okay? Because let's be honest, cats are snooty. They don't care about you, right? They're just walking around. They're doing their own thing. Dogs, they love you, right? And my dog will not leave me alone. She follows me everywhere. I I wake up, she gets up, right? I put my kids down. I go put James down. I lay in his room. My dog walks in. She lays down by James's bed. I get up. I go into Annabelle's room. She gets up. She comes into Annabelle's room, right? She follows me everywhere. And so one of the things I have to be careful of in my home is I can't look her in the eye. Right, because if I make eye contact with my dog, it's over. She gets excited, and then it's just like all invasion of personal space. There's licking, there's hair everywhere. It's just, it's a mess, okay, because that's, that's all she cares about is to be with me. Now, listen, I know it's kind of weird to say, but that's how we should be with God. Everywhere he goes, we go. We should long to be in his midst. We should long to be in his presence. We should constantly be seeking his space, not just a couple of times through the week, but each and every breath to say, how can I be near you? That's the pure and faultless religion that we need to talk about. So how do we achieve that? Well, we need to understand these terms a little bit more concretely, right? Because if, you, if you're like me, you start talking about purity, you start talking about faultlessness, I tend to equate it to abstaining from evil, right? There's, there's this list that we shouldn't do. Right? Don't do all these things, because if you do this, then you defile yourself, and so you want to be pure. So don't drink, don't smoke, don't cuss, don't watch this, don't listen to this. And, and we have this list that we equate to purification. Now, those things are important, but we need to understand the more complete understanding of purity, right? that it's more than just abstaining from evil, it's fighting for good. Right? It's a dedication to God. What, what he desires and what's laid out for us in the New Testament is not just purity of hands, it's purity of heart. Right, a heart that longs to see him glorified, a heart that longs to see him proclaimed. And so it's more than us just abstaining from evil, it's fighting for good. When we advocate for justice, when we fight for his kingdom, we are in his presence. And so that's what James follows, right? That's the line of thinking that leads us to then an example where he says this is what pure and faultless religion looks like. This is how you do what it says, how you avoid this self-deception, how you begin to live in his presence. Look after the orphan and the widow. That's his answer. Very specific. Now, it's Orphan Sunday, so we're going to really focus in on Orphan Sunday here in a moment, but let, let's, let's at least consider the widow for a moment. All right, the, the widow uh, actually is an interesting term that is derived from another word that means forsaken. And in, in, in particular, in, in biblical times, you would find that people that lost, uh, women that lost their husbands, they found themselves incredibly marginalized, right? That there was an oppression, there was a loss of rights, there was, there was this marginalization, and they needed someone to care for them. Now, if you go read 1 Timothy 5, it's very clear that if, if there is a child who has a parent, right, an adult child who, who has a parent that is a widow, 
It is the responsibility of the child to take care of that parent. The scripture says to fail, a failure to do so makes that person worse than an unbeliever. All right, so just to be very clear, if you're in this room, you've got aging parents, parents who have lost loved ones, it is your responsibility to care for them. To, to fail to do so makes you worse than an unbeliever. That's, that's what the scriptures say. The, the church should never neglect that, especially within our own families. Now, 1 Timothy 5 continues to say, if there is no one there, right? If there is no child there to do this, then the church steps in and we take care of them, right? And, and so this is a responsibility on both equations, like both, both examples here that we have to take seriously. And what widow and orphan have in common is this marginalization, this, this oppression, this loss of rights, this need for support. And so that's why the call is to look after, right? It means to care for. And, and what we need to understand is the weight of that request, the weight of that command. It's more than just, hey, praying for you. I can bring you a meal from time to time. To care for is actually the hard question. Who is actually going to care for this person? Right? And, and what I constantly am challenged with when we begin to look at this is that if there was ever a people that should be eager to respond to this call, it should be the church. Right? We should be those that are eager and ready to say, we'll do it. Because we see people in their distress, or as we looked at last week, we see all of their hurting, and we move with compassion. And as the choir sang earlier, how is this world going to know us? They're going to know us by our love. So we should be the ones that say, yes, I know this is hard. I know this is inconvenient, but we'll do it because we're the church. And we're going to be known for the way in which we love ourselves and we love those beyond us. All right? So that's the call, to look after the orphan and the widow. So how do we do that today? What does that look like? Well, well, let's first think a little bit more about the context today for orphans, okay? A lot of times we hear the word orphan and we think about a child that's lost, both mom and dad, and is living in an orphanage. And while that is a true definition, we need to think more broadly about it today. The way that I would define it for you is that it's any child that is at risk from losing their family. Okay, so that, that might mean that they still have both parents alive, but it's not a safe environment, and they might have to be removed from that family. Or maybe one parent is alive, but they can't care for them anymore, and so they might be re- removed from that family. It's the breakdown of family in the children that are at risk because of the breakdown of family. What we need to constantly see is that family is God's design, and it, and it needs to flourish. We talk about this all the time. We want to be a church where families are valued. Because that's where people can grow and flourish if it's a healthy environment. The, the Christian Alliance for Orphans, which is a, an organization that I'm using a lot of these statistics for, has a great quote that emphasizes the importance of family. <clears throat> it says, as a primary long-term solution, orphanages cannot replace the loving care of family and too often fail to meet the social, emotional, cognitive, and developmental needs of children and youth. You can't replace what a family can do. And so when we start thinking about caring for the orphan, we're we're really talking about family care. That's what we're talking about. I've rattled off the statistics before, right? You you think about what happens when a family breaks down. You you look at the largest variable that influences homelessness, uh, chemical abuse, human trafficking, incarceration, high school dropouts. The list goes on and on and on. The largest common denominator is a fatherless home. Right, so you want to fight for poverty? You want to fight against human trafficking? You want to fight against drug abuse and all those things? You know what you do? You care for the orphan. You, you fight for families. So, so our call 
to, to be a church where families are valued is more than just about our own personal families. It's looking around this world and saying, how do we fight for those that are in distress? And so there are several things that we need to consider when we think about how we do that, okay? It's more than just adoption, right? When we think about it from a family standpoint, the first thing that we should be praying for is reunification, if possible, right? Reunification says that if this child is in distress and is possibly being removed from their home, we want to see that family reunified, if, if it's okay, if it's safe. Okay, so, so what we do as the church is we don't just look at child, we look at 16-year-old mom who maybe isn't able to care for that child for a variety of reasons, and we say, okay, how can we help you as much as this child? Let's see you guys come back together. It, it's a ministry to the whole family, if possible. We desire reunification. If that doesn't work, then we look for kinship and relative care. Right? We, we acknowledge that there's still hopefully some sort of connectivity to a family that this child can have. And we, we, we allow that to be pursued. We long for that because, again, that could be the better option for the child. So we look for kinship care. Now, if those two things are being pursued, one of the ways that we step in is through foster care. It, this is a way in which families can say, okay, we'll, we'll bridge the gap. We're going to give a safe place to this child while reunification is pursued or while kinship care is pursued, and they can stay with us in a safe and loving environment. Now, this is hard. It's hard to welcome a child into a home and to love them and care for them, knowing that they may be taken again. But you do so with the heart and the mind that reunification and, and kinship care is better for that child because it's their family. It's, it's that hope. Now, that still doesn't always happen. And so when those things don't come to fruition, then we think about adoption. And we say, okay, this is where you belong. This can be your home. Right? So there, there's a large spectrum of ways within all of those in which we, the church, can be mobilized and can help these families in distress. Right? And the need is great. There's 140 million orphans around the world. 140 million. So the church has a responsibility to respond. Now, what does that look like in our context? In the U.S., I believe there is more than 470,000 children in 2017 that were in the foster care system. Of those 470,000, 117,000 of them were waiting to be adopted. 117,000 children in 2017 in the foster care system waiting to be adopted. You know how many churches there are in America? 384,000. More than three times the number of children waiting for a home. And if there was ever a statistic that, that might be convicting enough to imply that we're listening and not doing, it might be that one. We hear it, but if we were really doing, that number would cease to exist. So maybe the, the federal level is, is too overwhelming. So let's look at it at the state. In the state, I think there are 16,000 children in 2017 in the foster care system. There's more than 27,000 churches. Let's break it down to Tarrant County. Tarrant County, where this church exists. In September of 2018, there were 970 children in the foster care system, 212 that were waiting to be adopted. 212 kids in our county waiting for an adoption. You know how many churches there are in our county? 1,670. Man, th that needs to change. We have the ability to eradicate those numbers immediately if we wouldn't just listen, but do. Right now, I know we can't control every other church's response, but we can control ours. And so let me, let me give you some practical ways that we as a church are gonna begin to respond to this need, okay? We're gonna give you three on-ramps. 
three on-ramps to fight for this, because we know that there's a lot of different ways in which people would engage the needs of families in, in distress, right? And so here's the first one. The first on-ramp is we're going to do things to meet physical needs, right? Um, there's a wonderful organization that's in the Welcome Center today. Kyle Johnson, a church member here, uh, works with this organization. He's a great resource. It's called Care Portal. And, and Care Portal is a, is a great way just to create opportunities for, for people to meet the needs of families in distress, Right? Physical need. One of the things that Kyle has told me is that one of the number one reasons children are taken out of homes is because there are not enough beds in the home. There's not enough beds. And so it creates an unsafe environment. And so what churches that are involved with Care Portal are starting to do is, hey, we're, gonna, we're just going to have kind of a, 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 an inventory of beds that we can provide to these families when they need it. And so what we're going to start planning is, is sometime at the first part of 2019, either in January or February, we're going to have a bed building day as a church. And, and we're going to work through those details and those logistics, but we're going to invite people up and say, man, let's, let's build some beds so that if we can just give this to this family, then maybe that child can stay home. We're going to meet some needs. So I want you to go by that care portal thing and sign up. Find out more information. Say, I want to be a part of that and figure out ways that we can actually meet needs. Now, I realize, I realize that there are a lot of things behind that equation, right, that, that a lot of times we need to teach people to fish, not just give people a fish. I understand that, but hear me, the early church sold their properties and gave according to other people's needs. So, so we can also come alongside and meet people in those needs while also bringing that proclamation, that teaching, and that healing. All right, so that's, that's on-ramp one, meet needs. Number two, advocacy. Right, a couple other organizations that are here with us today, CASA and Buckner. Right, how do I advocate for a child? CASA, court-appointed special advocate. Right, you, you are assigned to a child who's going through so much chaos, so much transition, so many things that aren't constant, and you get a chance to be that one voice and say, I'll be there for you. You can volunteer with an organization like that. Or you you think about respite care or or substitute foster care. This is the opportunity that when foster families need a break, they can't just call a babysitter, right? They can't just call up somebody to come over and watch. They need uh, people that are trained and available to actually do that. So maybe you can't give a year. Maybe you can't give the whole call towards fostering or adoption, but you can give a weekend. You can give a couple hours here and there and, and minister to that child, or you can minister to that family. That, that's the other avenue, advocacy. Right? And then the third level is actual foster care and adoption, where you would say, okay, we'll welcome them in. We'll be that safe place. We, we know it's hard. We know it's not easy, but, but we'll do that for them. There are three different on-ramps that we're trying to provide. And you can get more information about all of those today. And I'd encourage you to go by and take a look at that and give a chance to consider how we can do this. Because here's the deal, y'all. If we would just believe in this vision, if we would believe in this gospel, we would discover that this is more than just responding to a task. It would be more than something that feels overwhelming. It would be a journey into the heart of God himself and a chance to rediscover the essence and the power of this gospel. And that's what we want to be a church to do. That's, that's a church that truly becomes a people that loves justice. A church that doesn't just listen, but does what has been said. Now here's, here's how I want to close, okay? I want to close it the same way James does here. Right? He ends this verse by saying, the other thing that makes this religion pure and faultless is to keep yourself from being polluted by the world. Right? And so what, what does that mean? The, the polluted by the world is the opposite of being pure and faultless. It's actually being marked by the world, being stained by the world. The world is a representation of all that is evil in our midst. 
And so one of the reasons that we struggle to do what is, is said, one of the reasons that we struggle to, to live this out is that we find ourselves often polluted by this world around us. And I want to discuss this using the imagery of adoption and, and how this can, can play itself out. One of the most influential books that I came across in this whole journey of adoption is Russell Moore's Adopted for Life. I highly recommend it. And, and what he does is he shares the story of his own journey into adoption, that he and his wife adopted two boys from Russia. And he talks a lot about uh, that journey and how it awakened him to just the essence of the gospel in so many powerful ways. And, and in one of the parts of his book, he talks about that journey into the orphanage where these children were being kept. And he creates this really powerful image that, that shows us how we can be so polluted by the world. He, he talks about just the harshness of the orphanage. Right? The, the way that when he saw his two young children, they, that they weren't kept, they, they were uh, in need of so many different elements of care. But one of the things he said was the most horrifying about the situation was that when he walked through the orphanage, it was quiet. Despite having rooms filled with numerous cribs, filled with babies, it was quiet. He said if you listened intently enough, you could actually hear children rocking themselves to sleep. Why? Because they had learned that if they cried, no one came. And so he thinks about the horrors of this orphanage and how much these children would likely be so grateful to be rescued. Right? The, the opportunity, the, the, this poetic, romanticized moment that they would just love to be taken out of such an environment only to discover it was a very different reaction. Here's how he describes it. He says, we found that their transition from orphanage to family was more difficult than we had supposed. We dressed the boys in outfits our parents had bought for them. We nodded our thanks to the orphanage personnel and walked out into the sunlight to the terror of the boys. They'd never seen the sun. They'd never felt the wind. They'd never heard the sound of a car door slamming. I noticed that they were shaking and reaching back to the orphanage in the distance. All they knew was the orphanage. They had no other reference point. It was home. You see, that's the whole story of redemption. The universe was meant to be a home where the image bearers of God rule and serve under their father. It was all to be ours. The primeval insurrection in the garden, though, turned the universe into an orphanage. The heirs were gone, done in by their appetites, and a serpent now holds the cosmos in captivity, driving along the deposed rulers as his slaves. The whole universe now is an orphanage. And we get too comfortable with this orphanage universe. We're content with the world that we know. Just adjusted a little for our identity as Christians, but that's precisely why so many of us are so atrophied in our prayers, where our prayers rarely reach the level of groanings too deep for words because we are too numbed to be as frustrated as the Spirit is with the way things are. I know you think this terrestrial orphanage is home, our Father tells us through prophets and apostles and consciences and imaginations, but it's a pit compared to home. Right? We, we need to remember that this world is not home. May God never find us reaching back for this orphanage, but, but find us longing to be with him. That's the journey that we need to pursue. Now, I've been on this adoption journey personally for quite some time. And in fact, um, it was a pretty amazing couple of weeks because just two weeks ago, as I was sitting there studying for this text, praying through this text, we got a phone call that we'd been matched with a child in China. And so our world has been filled 
with excitement the last couple of weeks. Our, our hearts are thrilled, but I'll be honest, we're overwhelmed. It's scary, but we're thrilled. And it's been a long time for our hearts to be at that place because even before I was married to Jennifer, when we were dating, she talked about her desire to adopt. And so I figured that this would be a part of our story at some point. But when we got married and we decided to start a family, we quickly discovered that, that starting a family for us was not gonna come easily. And it initiated what was one of the most emotionally draining and taxing journeys of our lives. And so by the time Annabelle was here, I was done, was tired. But not too long after she turned to me again, she said, hey, I don't think our family's done. I think we need to think about this adoption. And I'll be honest, I didn't want to do it. I kept it at arm's length. It was too scary. It's too overwhelming. It was too hard. And so if there's anyone in this room today that listens to a text, and that's how you feel, I, I understand. I've been there. But things begin to change for me. And one of them was reading a book like this and discovering the inescapable reality that a journey into adoption is a rediscovery of the gospel itself. It's what's been done for us. How can we not do it for another? But greater than a book was the testimony of a friend of mine, Daniel Kumar, a pastor in India. And he was a pastor that I met on one of my first trips there. And in, in discovering his heart for ministry, one of the things that we saw is that he had started at least eight different orphanages. And so in my time there, we would see these children and their lives literally being transformed by this man and his wife and the way in which they were pouring into these children. It was inspiring. And so here we were in a, at a critical juncture in our lives, praying through, is this really for us? Is this God's call? And Pastor Daniel was in the States visiting. I was still at first Arlington, but he was sharing a devotional with the staff that morning, and, and the question came up about how he started his orphanages. And he talked about the phone call. The day that he got a phone call saying, hey, there's this girl that we found on the street. A little girl completely abandoned. She has nowhere to go. Will you take her? And with an immediate joy, he said, absolutely. And as I heard him say that, I thought, man, if that were me, you know what I'd say? I'd say, well, let me think about it. Let me see if there's another organization I can get you in, in touch with. Let me see if we can find another long-term solution. But Pastor Daniel, yes, absolutely, without hesitation, without fear. And he shared that story and it inspired me again. And on that morning, I texted my wife. I said, okay, let's do it. We're in. And for the last several years, that's what we've been praying through. That's what we've been waiting for. And it's been the testimonies of people like Russell Moore and Daniel Kumar that have inspired me. And one of the things that I'll never forget about Pastor Daniel's testimony as it comes to this adoption is I remember being an Indian, him talking to us about this girl in particular who came home one day from school just completely distraught, overwhelmed, upset, and he came up to her and he said, what, what's wrong? What's bothering you? And she said, well, it was a really hard day at school. And he said, why is that? She said, everybody's making fun of me. Everybody's questioning me and accusing me because I'm an orphan. I don't have a name. See, in India, names mean a whole lot. Immediately, they can define who you are, where you're from, your status. She didn't have one. And it was killing her. It was breaking her. 
And so the next day, Pastor Daniel goes down to that school. He stands in front of that classroom. He meets with the teachers and the educators, and he says, this is my daughter. She is Kumar. She has my name. And he stood up for her. That's the gospel. Right? All of us sit in this universe orphaned and abandoned. And the accuser comes into our hearts and our minds and questions our worth, questions our value. And God in his great love for us sends Jesus who stands in the face of the accuser and says, not this one. She's my daughter. He's my son. They carry my name. And that changes everything for you and me. Because we get to hear the voice of a Savior say, you belong to me. You're mine. If he's done that for us, how can we not do it for others? Let's pray. Father, I'm moved moved by just the brokenness of this world, God, and how much people need you. And so I pray that each and every one of us would be stirred to respond. To think about the love that you have shared with us and our capacity and our ability to share it with others. Father, nothing about love is easy. Nothing about love is convenient. And that's what makes it love. And that's what makes it powerful. And so ignite this church to not just listen, but to do what you've said. To be an advocate for those who need it. Stand up and be a voice. To give someone a home. And when we do that, Father, may we be able to point to you and to your glory and your glory alone. We're so grateful for the love that you've shown us. We're so grateful that we can stand here today and regardless of our past, regardless of our circumstances, we know that we belong to you and that with you we're home. So may that truth forever compel us forward. And we pray this all in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. Amen.